Thanks for tuning into this edition of the Suburban Folk Podcast. We are an independent podcast, so we appreciate all listener support that we receive. And we also try to support other independent podcasts, such as my friends over at the Round and Round Podcast. Hey, this is Jeff. And I'm Chris. We've been friends. Acquaintances. No, friends. Shipmates. Dude, come on. We've been friends. Fine. Sure. Whatever. We've been friends for 23? No, 24. Whatever, dude. It's been a long time. No kidding. We host a show called Round and Round. We discuss the worst. And sometimes the best. Headlines we can find. Watch for signs of the Cold War heating up again. And desperately try to find some good news to celebrate. Occasionally, we delve into important topics impacting the world, the nation, or those around us. And every once in a while, we take a break from the real world to talk about new movies or to revisit and reimagine old movies we love. Find us at rnrthepodcast.com. Tweet us at rnrthepodcast. And download Round and Round on Apple Podcast, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you cast your pods. Join us every Wednesday, won't you? I wouldn't recommend it. That's fine. Health, travel, finance, parenting, and home improvement. This is the Suburban Folk Podcast. $250 a month into my child's 529 from the month that they start kindergarten, I should be able to pay for 80% of my child's college. Because I don't trust that most people will eat their vegetables. So usually our kind of standard is three servings of vegetables per meal. You take something like a a two-by-six and you cut it with a circular saw. That's like a superpower. Those middle school years are not as fun, but... At that age, they're still willing to talk to you. Welcome to the Suburban Folk Podcast. I'm your host, Greg. Today's topic is around personal finance, specifically how you can take historical examples and apply them to your everyday finances. My guest is John Vespasian. He's the author of 10 books about rational living. His most recent book is called Undisrupted, How Highly Effective People Deal with Disruptions. Vespasian has lived in Germany, Italy, France, Spain, and the Netherlands. His books combine his passion for history, investing, and personal development, reflecting his philosophy of rational living, productiveness, and respect for the individual. John, thanks so much for joining the show today. I really appreciate it. Uh, Thanks, uh, Greg. Thanks for having me on. So to kick us off, can you just walk us through your background? How did you get to the point of becoming an author and your focus on um, historical examples and then leading into dealing with disruption ultimately with your most recent book? Yes, uh, I started to write uh, books about personal development, uh, personal finance, uh, anything related uh, to career development 10 years ago. And the reason why I started to write books, uh, which in principle doesn't sound like a very um, very good business idea to write books, which takes a lot of work uh, and it's difficult to make money writing books. It has other, other benefits. But the reason why I started to do that uh, was out of sheer frustration. I've been reading books uh, for uh, decades about uh, personal development, personal finance, uh, career development. And at a certain point, I became very frustrated uh, about uh, the kind of books I could find in the market because I found uh, most advice uh, rather unrealistic. uh, Very much uh, focused on feelings, on uh, anecdotes not on real experience. So what I've done in my books, and this is number 10, the one that uh, came out uh, recently, uh, is to go through history, to go through uh, dozens and dozens of biographies of people in different uh, centuries, uh, different professions, uh, different backgrounds, 
to try to draw uh, from their experience, uh, from their success and from their failure, to try to draw lessons we can uh, apply in the 21st century. Uh, the books uh, lean heavily on uh, my background, which is an international background. I've been uh, uh, working in different countries. I lived uh, in, uh, in Belgium, in France, in uh, Italy for a while, in Germany, uh, now in the Netherlands. So it has a very much an international approach. I try to, to uh, use examples that uh, can relate to anyone in any country. There are examples from different cultures. But uh, they focus uh, heavily on my interest in, uh, in personal success, uh, personal development, uh, and also on financial markets. Is there a universal definition of success? This is sort of a leading question because I think the answer is no. For example, you said writing books is very hard to really make money for it. So I got to imagine that the definition of success is not necessarily straight monetary. But are there similar uh, concepts of what success would be when people are starting to see what they can do for a career development? Uh, yes, I think there is, uh, there is a pattern. And uh, if you go through my books, you will see, I mean, dashes and dashes of biographies in different fields. And there is a pattern you find in uh, almost uh, every successful person, which is the following. It is not that uh, people are setting goals uh, to become something specific, uh, because uh, most um, successful people, actually, uh, when you look at the biography, you don't see any goals. Uh, you don't see any um, uh, goal setting in a very specific way. This is something that uh, uh, psychologists have uh, constructed uh, in retrospective. But when you look at the biographies, you don't see this kind of pattern. What you see, uh, I think in almost 99.9% .9 of successful people, is a very strong uh, sense of direction, which doesn't mean uh, focus on money necessarily. They have... Uh, um, uh, with very few exceptions, they have a, a very uh, focused uh, interest in an area uh, which sometimes is difficult to make money from at the beginning, but eventually they figure out uh, how to turn it into a business, into a successful profession, uh, into some kind of career. And you see this pattern uh, in ancient history, you see this pattern in the Middle Ages, you see this pattern in the 19th century, you see this pattern today. I think it's a universal uh, human pattern that uh, if you develop a strong interest in some area, which might be sometimes exoteric, uh, some might be, for instance, personally, for instance, I'm very much interested in languages. I'm, uh, I speak several languages. I love learning languages. I'm currently, for instance, uh, learning Russian, which at a certain um, uh, point, um, uh, it requires a lot of effort. Uh, you cannot really see when you start doing this kind of stuff uh, a, an immediate uh, benefit. But of course, uh, uh, when you look at it uh, in, the, in terms of 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, you see at the end uh, that it was a good idea because I, I found and you find a way to, uh, to use this knowledge. So I repeat, this is a, it's a sense of direction, a sense of knowing what you like, what you don't like, uh, that actually pushes uh, successful people through uh, decades of uh, steady work. And eventually, uh, when you see these uh, very successful people in retrospect, you say, ah, you see, you see the story was clear. He was heading uh, to this goal. And this is not true. Um, it happens very often that people don't know exactly what they want. They just go into the direction. They, they basically ignore uh, uh, negative criticism from other people saying, ah, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? It doesn't make sense. But it makes sense to them. And eventually, they find a way to use it. 
And I think this is a very uh, practical definition of success, very much uh, individual uh, related. But when you look at history, when you look at, at real examples, and this is what I do in my books, uh, you see this pattern uh, is almost universal. And I think it's a, a very good, very practical, very realistic uh, definition of success. You mentioned being able to figure out a way to sell whatever the service or item, whatever it is that the person is passionate about. Because I'm guessing that's what we're talking about here is you're setting a goal, which means presumably you're passionate about whatever the thing you're pursuing. How much does considering what the market is looking for, and I know that's a very broad question when we're talking about, you know, sort of decades over decades, centuries over centuries. But what did you see in the examples that you researched for folks that were successful? Were they, like you're mentioning, just always dead set that whatever their goal was is what they were going to do and didn't really pay that much attention to what the market was telling them they should be doing? Or is there some sense of taking the thing you're passionate about and maybe the thing that is going to end up being your life's work and is sustainable is close to that, but you've changed it a little bit because it's more in line with what will actually make a living for yourself. Yeah, actually, there is no contradiction. Um, um, I think it's better if I just present some examples because the the idea that uh, you develop some skill, I don't know, whatever, you learn to, to uh, fix uh, cars or to repair cars, and then you find a way as a mechanic yeah, this is like uh, very easy uh, to put it in this way, but uh, actually human life is much more complicated because sometimes happens very often that people learn uh, things that uh, look completely worthless. Uh, they have hobbies, they have interests, they have, uh, I don't know, skills that uh, they gather. Uh, most people don't exploit them. Most, most people, they have this uh, idea that, okay, you learn to be a mechanic and then you just work as a mechanic and that's it. And then you have your hobbies and then you watch TV and that's, uh, that's life. But when you look at uh, successful people, it doesn't work like this. Um, for instance, let me give you a few examples from, the, from my latest book. One of the uh, biographies I present in the book, uh, which shows this, this uh, pattern of uh, what I call a sense of direction, is the story of uh, Joseph Paxson, who was a British uh, gardener uh, from the 19th century. Uh, from a gardener, eventually he became a very successful uh, architectural consultant and a very archite uh, successful architect. And the story is fascinating because the guy didn't have education. He started to work as an assistant uh, gardener when he was uh, 14 years old. He barely went to school. Huh? I mean, he could read at the beginning, but uh, not, not very fluently. And eventually, uh, because he was very curious, he was ambitious, uh, he wanted to make something out of uh, his life, he started uh, to, um, to try to improve uh, the, um, the area. He was working in a big uh, estate in the north of England. He started to plant different trees. He wanted to improve things, but he didn't know much. And uh, just by sheer uh, trial and error, uh, he started to experiment with uh, glass houses, which in the 19th century was one of the big uh, innovations uh, in gardening. Uh, he built uh, a few uh, very primitive uh, glass houses in this estate. And eventually he became very good at building glass houses, but he didn't make much money. But he found it fascinating. He started to write uh, articles in newspapers. Then he started a, a gardening uh, magazine, but he didn't make a lot of money. He could not find a job. And it, he did it uh, for almost 20 years. And it's fascinating. This guy was uh, developing his, his expertise without finding uh, a real outlet uh, for his uh, talent. 
And eventually, as it happens very often in these stories, eventually he found an opportunity. He uh, found uh, there was a call for tender uh, in London to build uh, a, an exhibition hall uh, for a great exhibition, universal exhibition. And he submitted a bid uh, to build a, a huge uh, glass house instead of building uh, a brick uh, building. Uh, all the architectural firms in London, they submitted uh, proposals, but Paxton, uh, who was a gardener, who was an expert in glass houses, was the only one who was able to provide uh, a design that was very much low cost, could be built very quickly, and could be dismantled very quickly. And he designed this building uh, almost in a week. And when you see the, the way he won the, uh, the call for tender, it's fascinating because he used all his expertise. He used his expertise in, in design, uh, glass houses. He used his expertise in media because he had been writing articles or newspapers uh, about gardening for years. So he knew a lot of newspapers, uh, editors. So he sent his design to several newspapers in London to make sure that uh, he got a lot of publicity. And, and during the, uh, the call for tender, he was in all the newspapers, he was uh, getting interviews. So eventually he got the contract and he delivered the, uh, the building under budget and ahead of time. And the building that he designed for six months eventually was used for 30 years. So profitable, was extremely profitable, the building. And then he became very famous and he became uh, a designer of uh, country houses uh, for the Rothschild family. Now, this kind of career, uh, which you see uh, involves a lot of uh, uh, a very strong sense of direction because the guy was curious. He wanted to develop his career. He wanted to learn. Uh, he wanted to try different things, but he didn't have a goal. You cannot say that uh, Paxton, uh, from the very beginning, wanted to become a millionaire. He wanted uh, to become a famous architect. It is not the case. Uh, the guy, for almost uh, 15 years, almost 20 years, he was just struggling uh, to, to increase his income and eventually uh, he found a good opportunity because he has built, he had built uh, such a combination of skills that was completely unique and eventually he found a good opportunity and he became very famous and very wealthy. And this is the perfect uh, example of a career development, uh, I would say, uh, when people develop skills because something they like, they have a passion, they are ambitious, uh, they are constantly learning and eventually, when you see in retrospective, you have you construct this uh, this uh, story of having a goal, which is false. I mean, the guy didn't have a goal. And I present many of these stories in the in the book uh, with different patterns uh, to show how people actually can uh, profit from this uh, this strategy. I, yeah, I think there's a lot to learn from that story. What I'm hearing you say is an emphasis on the willingness to learn and grow especially if you're starting out in an industry or a place where you don't necessarily have the ability to make a living, well then learn whatever the skill is or whatever the other things are that maybe are related to. And once you amass those skills, then like in this example, you may have something very, very unique that becomes um, something that's needed by the market or just get you into a, a whole different industry altogether. So definitely, I would say that that's for sure. Being naturally curious and then um, willing to figure out how stuff works. How much do you find that fear of the unknown and sort of staying away from personal growth gets in the way for folks? And you know, how how should they deal with that so that they are continuing to amass skills and you know becoming more marketable? Nowadays, uh, you cannot really open a book about uh, psychology or personal development. 
uh, without um, reading about this uh, positive thinking and this uh, law of attraction and, and that you should just do it and do not uh, uh, get stopped by your fear. And you see this um, uh, tendency to push people forward uh, without much thought. Uh, this is, I think this is very unrealistic, uh, this, uh, uh, this philosophy. Unfortunately, today uh, it dominates uh, 99% of the, of, I think, of the market for psychology, uh, personal advice, counseling, and this kind of stuff. Um, it's very unfortunate because when you look at history and you look at uh, real cases of people, uh, you almost never uh, see uh, successful people uh, trusting their future to positive thinking. So it's normal to have fear. It's, uh, it's very dangerous to, uh, to convince yourself uh, through suggestion that uh, you can do anything. Uh, one of the patterns I, I really present in the book, which is confirmed by, by dozens of examples, is that uh, people who do very well in times, in times of adversity, in times of, uh, of um, uh, bankruptcy, uh, when they get uh, sick, uh, when they lose the job, when they get the divorce, People who do very well uh, tend to fall back on skills, on um, uh, relationships, on uh, territories, on areas they know very well. And people who systematically are going to fail, and you see uh, hundreds of examples in history, these are people who improvise, uh, who get into, uh, into careers, into businesses, into areas they know nothing about. Uh, they feel very confident, maybe because they are very foolish. But uh, it is uh, playing against the odds. Uh, this is like today when you see all these stories in newspapers that uh, you see these uh, Hollywood uh, uh, actors and they make a fortune and then they lose it uh, by investing in some uh, stupid, I don't know, restaurant or something or uh, these uh, basketball players that they make a fortune and then they buy uh, shares in some uh, gold mine in, in, I don't know, in Africa. I mean, these stories, uh, they have been happening for hundreds of years. Is that, um, it's very unfortunate that uh, human beings tend to repeat uh, the same patterns. But the message, uh, uh, one of the mes uh, main messages from the book is that uh, you have to learn to go through a learning curve. You have to be patient. You have to know what you know and what you don't know. And the, the very worst thing you can do uh, in any area of life is to improvise. Uh, if you want to invest in the, in the stock market, uh, which I, I, I really recommend everybody to learn at least uh, the basics of investing in the stock market in the long term, uh, you have to go through a learning curve. You can start uh, uh, by opening a brokerage account, by making small investments, by following the market. You have to start somewhere, but um, you have to go through a learning curve. Uh, there is no magic. Uh, you cannot uh, just rely on some guru who's going to tell you what to do. You have to learn yourself and it's going to take time. Do not improvise. Uh, realize that uh, whatever you want to do in life, uh, you have to learn. It's going to take some time. It's going to take some effort, but um, you can do it. I mean, uh, and uh, in the book, I present many examples of people who, who got who wanted to get into a different business or in a different area. Uh, they realized they didn't know anything about it and they learned uh, little by little and they became very, very successful. But this is the way to do it. It is not magic. It is not uh, positive thinking, it's uh, prudence. It's good uh, to have uh, fear because fear will protect you. You just have to, uh, to be able to deal with it uh, by learning what you have to learn. 
I would definitely second what you're talking about with learning the stock market. That was, I went through that kind of a learning curve. And, and, you know, just like anything, I'm sure there's plenty more that I could figure out. Actually, when we do any of our financial shows, I try to emphasize, hey, we understand that people are coming into this brand new. So if we talk about, you know, acronyms or, shorthand ways of describing things, um, try to do our best to explain what they are so that people don't feel too, too lost in what we're discussing. So again, I would definitely second what you're saying for anybody to have at least some understanding of the stock market. And again, like you said, realizing that it's something new to be learned, um, just like anything else that you've learned, you, you'll get it eventually. There is a curve that'll take a little bit of time. I also think that Wrapping that together with your career aspirations, the better you are at your investing and the smarter you can be with budgeting and so on, then potentially the more options you have career-wise because you're not necessarily having to do the same things that you don't want to do, <laughs> let's say, um, day over day because you haven't left yourself any room financially to grow from there. And the other thing that strikes me in how you're describing being innovative and especially in hard times, being adaptive is this term, the gig economy that I think has gotten more popular over the years. And, you know, taking the things that you are good at and maybe have just been a hobby and figuring out a way to maybe have a little bit of a side business with it and, you know, seeing where that goes. Is that something that you're familiar with and just based on these concepts, do you think the gig economy is a good thing or is it maybe just something that's distracting people from ultimately reaching whatever their potential should be if they were just focused on one task? Yeah, I think um, uh, we have to learn from history in these cases to avoid uh, misunderstandings because the idea that um, uh, you can make a living as a consultant uh, selling your services sporadically now and then and you're going to do an event here and you're going to do something there and you're going to, it's like uh, performing, like if you are a performing artist, uh, yes, uh, you are going to get bookings from time to time, but what is behind uh, is a massive uh, career investment in the long term. It's not that uh, it happens by chance. And let me just give you an example from the book. Uh, one of the successful careers that I present in the book uh, is the story of uh, Rubens. He was a painter, very successful painter in the 17th century. And I find the, the story fascinating because uh, while uh, Rubens was making really a fortune, I mean, he really made uh, uh, a huge fortune as an artist, uh, which is the gig economy. Yeah, yeah. He was painting and he was selling his paintings one by one. And he had to find uh, every painting was a project, uh, so to speak. And he made a huge fortune. And what is fascinating is that at the same time, uh, when Rubens was uh, uh, becoming very successful in, uh, in Antwerp, in, uh, in Belgium, you see all the painters in the environment, like, uh, for instance, Vermeer is a, a very famous painter from the same period. And uh, while Rubens was painting almost uh, five, uh, uh, five paintings a week, uh, Vermeer was doing uh, one uh, every six months, uh, barely making any money. Vermeer never managed to turn his gig into, uh, into a career because he was doing something else. He could not make enough money. Uh, from painting, even if he was, I think, much better than Rubens. He couldn't make enough money because he didn't figure out uh, the marketing uh, part. He didn't figure out uh, the productivity part. He didn't figure out uh, the um, uh, the design, uh, sorry, the design, the creativity part. And Rubens uh, did um, 
something very clever because he, when he was in his 20s and uh, he wanted to become a painter, he realized it was very difficult. And this is what most people don't realize when they are talking about the gig economy. Most people don't realize how difficult it is uh, to maintain uh, this kind of uh, project-based um, uh, career in the long term. I mean, you can do it for a few months, but to do it for years and to do it successfully, you need uh, to become actually very productive, very um, uh, uh, effective in your marketing. And Rubens, uh, uh, when he was in his 20s and he realized it was almost impossible uh, to make a living as a painter because there were a million painters in the 17th century uh, earning some money uh, as a hobby. It was the same as today. You see a million people playing guitar uh, in cafes, in bars. They're gigs, but they don't make any money. And Rubens uh, realized that uh, the only way to turn his gigs into a business uh, was to copy the best practices. So he realized that nobody was making any money in his uh, city in Antwerp. Uh, painting. They were all um, amateurs, but uh, they barely make any money. So he, he looked around and said, who is making money? Who is making money with these gigs? Uh, he realized that uh, the only people who were making money, they were in Italy. In Italy, painters made a huge amount of money in Florence, in Rome, in Venice. So uh, Rubens traveled uh, to Italy. He was there almost for a year. Uh, he stayed in Florence, in, Ru in, uh, sorry, in uh, Venice, in Rome. And he actually talked to the successful painters and he realized that uh, what they were doing uh, was very different from what he thought. Because people have this idea of the painters as a creative guy who makes uh, a painting in his garret and then he sells the painting to a gallery. I mean, it's really a very um, uh, um, Hollywood movie idea, but it's not very realistic. I mean, you cannot make any money like this. Uh, Rubens went to Italy. He realized that uh, the big Italian painters like uh, Tiepolo, um, uh, they had a marketing system, they had uh, employees, they had extremely high productivity. And when he went back to uh, Antwerp, he copied uh, what he had learned and he turned his uh, gig uh, economy, so to speak, into a business. And he developed a very sophisticated marketing system uh, he developed an extremely high productivity. Uh, he hired uh, people to uh, finish his paintings that he uh, pre-designed. Even he hired people to read uh, books to him, uh, to read aloud while he was painting to get him more ideas. And he hired students uh, from the uh, seminar uh, in Amberb to come to his uh, uh, workshop to read books to him so that he could get more ideas for paintings. I mean, he developed a factory of uh, creativity. And this is fascinating. While all the other painters were barely uh, making a living, many of them were starving, actually, uh, Rubens made a huge fortune. And it's not a coincidence uh, to turn this uh, gig uh, economy or this economic uh, um, uh, idea, this project-based uh, um, approach into a, a business, into a, a successful career, uh, you need to copy these kind of techniques because otherwise uh, you will be uh, wiped out by the first uh, disruption. And this is this is what I try to show in the book. If you want to build a solid career, solid uh, solid finances, uh, solid uh, skills, you have to copy these kind of, uh, of patterns from history because people have gone through this experience before. You don't need to reinvent the wheel. You just have to look at people like Rubens to see how they did it. And today in the 21st century, you can use exactly the same principles.
and we're talking about scalability here, right? I mean, it, to, to sort of boil it down. And it's interesting because I probably, if you would ask me if painting is scalable to your point, you know, if you're not thinking outside of the box, it probably doesn't seem like it. But Ruben's found a way to actually get that done. Have you found in your research that there's any particular um, industry or hobby or skill that just isn't scalable, no matter what somebody does, that maybe isn't the thing to make your business? Well, if you operate in a very small market, and Rubens realized very quickly, for instance, imagine that uh, you work and you're making uh, uh, musical instruments by hand, and then you, you just have to buy the uh, precious uh, wood and you cut, I don't know, the, the violins and this kind of stuff. It's difficult to make a, a, a very good living like that because the market is relatively small. Yeah, you can you can find uh, customers and you can uh, sell your uh, products, but uh, it's, it's not a huge market. And Rubens, when he went to Italy, he realized that uh, um, you have to have a marketing system wherever you do. Um, when he went to Italy, he realized that actually the market for paintings was, uh, was uh, split in several segments because when people think about artists, uh, I don't know, music or whatever, uh, they don't apply the same logic as when you're running a company because when you're running a company, you realize you have to have segmentation in your uh, marketing. You have to focus your advertising on the right uh, targets. And Rubens, in the 17th century, he went to Italy and said, ah, I didn't realize there were several markets, actually. There is a market for portraits. Uh, there is a market for landscapes. Uh, there is a market for religious painting. And uh, he realized that the marketing approach for each of them was different. And when he went back to Italy, uh, sorry, to uh, Belgium, to Antwerp, uh, he realized that uh, he had to operate on different markets if he wanted to make a living because it was very risky uh, to have only one customer. If you were for the church, and many people in the 17th century were for the church, uh, it was very risky because uh, if you got uh, some uh, conflict with the church, and it, it was really always uh, very difficult uh, because you you might uh, make a painting that was a bit controversial and then you were out, it was very risky. So Rubens did what artists should do. He segmented his market. He developed uh, marketing strategies for different uh, segments. And he sold portraits to the families. He sold uh, religious paintings to the church. And he sold uh, landscapes uh, to the average uh, uh, family. And he uh, made money in all the markets because he developed uh, marketing uh, strategies for all those. I mean, just to give you an idea, for instance, uh, Rubens, every time he went out of his uh, home in Antwerp, he always carried with him a sketchbook. And he went constantly to dinners, uh, to parties, uh, to all kinds of uh, meetings, and he always carried his uh, sketchbook. And as soon as he met someone new, uh, he made quickly uh, with a carbon, um, he made a sketch of a painting and said, would you like to buy this? And he proposed constantly, uh, uh, 10 times a day, uh, possible ideas for paintings to everybody he met. And this is how he got constantly, he got uh, new commissions. And how many artists are doing this in the 21st century? Very few. Uh, people are just waiting for uh, creativity uh, and magic uh, to happen. But uh, if you want to transform your career into a supercharged, uh, successful machine, you have to copy from history. Uh, don't expect magic. Don't expect uh, positive thinking to help you. Copy from history. Just imitate uh, people who made a living, who become very successful, and who were able to uh, go through uh, disruptions uh, without a scratch. Let's stay on marketing just for a minute, because especially in the creative arts world, 
I think that a lot of people would probably say, well, I'm not a salesperson. Now, this goes back to the fear thing that we were talking about. Um, do you find that if that's outside of somebody's comfort zone to really be marketing and sort of pushing their product, should they just fight through the fear and get used to it themselves? Is there any sort of an option for um, outsourcing <laughs> the marketing, so getting a business partner or something like that? What do you recommend there? Well, uh, depends on the business you're operating. I mean, if you are a, a, a pop artist, I mean, you have to get uh, to the stage and you have to sing. I mean, otherwise, I mean, it doesn't work. Uh, unless you are a composer and you don't want to deal with a, with the public. But if you're uh, in any kind of business, uh, you are. And let me just give you another example from from the book. In any kind of business, you are. Uh, you have to realize um, uh, what you really want to do, what kind of skills you have, and what you hate. Uh, it's perfectly fine if you hate uh, some part of the business. For instance, Rubens uh, hated uh, the coloring, so he did the design of the, I mean, the, the draft of the painting. But then he hired people to put the colors because really it was really a horrible work. I mean, you have to make uh, the colors by hand by mixing grease with uh, pigments and all kind of flowers. I mean, it was really horrible work. So he hired uh, 10 people to do that, and he, uh, he hated uh, to do that. Most painters in the 17th century did it themselves, and Rubens said, no, no, I'm not going to do that. It's horrible. I'm not going to do it. So he never did it. Another example. Uh, for instance, another uh, career I present in the book is, uh, is uh, Robert Stephenson and George Stephenson, and they were uh, investors in railroads in the in the 19th century. And they built uh, a, a big part of the of the railroad infrastructure in the UK. And they were father and son. I mean, the father George Stephenson he developed um, some improvements in uh, in locomotives. And his son Robert Stephenson uh, he didn't like the business. I mean, he didn't like. He was uh, he studied engineering and chemistry. But he didn't want to make locomotives because he didn't like it. I mean, he was not uh, interested in mechanical stuff. He wanted to do finances. So he focused his career basically uh, uh, for 50 years. He was almost uh, only doing project finance. And he would find uh, an idea to build uh, railroads between two uh, cities in the UK. He raised the money from investors. Uh, he created uh, a company uh, to run the project, he incorporated the company, and then he sold the project. Um, to the uh, EU, to the UK uh, Parliament to get uh, a concession. I mean, he did it a uh, hundred times, and he knew that he didn't like to deal with uh, people a lot because he was very much a very intellectual uh, guy, and he uh, concentrated on this part of the business. So he did finance, finance, finance uh, for uh, fifty years. Uh, without actually focusing on other areas. He hired people, for instance, to do the designs of the railroads. He hired people to do the procurement of the uh, locomotives, and he focused on the finance. And he became super sharp in this particular area because it was his, uh, what I always call, the sense of direction. Uh, the guy realized that this was what he wanted to do. He liked very much to, uh, to package uh, pro uh, projects, uh, to sell uh, the ideas to investors, uh, he left the actual implementation to uh, to different people. So these kind of careers, um, uh, they can be very successful, but you have to know yourself. You have to realize that uh, you cannot learn everything. You cannot do everything. Eventually, if you if you hate to do something, uh, you can subcontract it. You can hire someone to do it. Uh, you can uh, design your career or your products uh, so that you don't have to do this kind of stuff. 
and then you can be successful. I mean, today we live in a very complex society where this, uh, we have a lot of um, uh, concentration of focusing on different areas. Uh, we have this uh, distribution of work where people have different uh, interests. So you can always find someone uh, to do what you don't want to do. You just have to pay the price. So I think it's a, it's a good comment, uh, but you should not be discouraged uh, from uh, becoming an artist or becoming a, a banker or becoming whatever just because you don't like uh, one specific thing. You can always get around it. As long as you are very good in some area, uh, you can you can do very well. Maybe connecting that back to being adaptable to certain skills, it behooves you to try out whatever the different aspects of the business are, um, like a marketing or, you know, like you mentioned, the uh, mixing paints or whatever the thing is. So at least you've said you've done it and know whether or not you don't like it or not. And I would imagine um, that would even allow you the ability to, A, figure out what the cost is going to be to have somebody else do it for you, B, just figure out if it's worth it or if it's something that needs to be included in what you're doing from a business standpoint. And and then also, once you hire those people, if you have at least tried the task that you're hiring somebody to do, you, you probably have a good idea of whether or not they're doing it well or not. <laughs> what makes me think of, for example, is when we do our home improvement episodes, we talk about whenever you need to bring in a contractor to do your plumbing or your electrical or something like that. And yeah, maybe you don't want to do the work. Maybe you're not ready to do it. But if you've done other types of projects, you can at least sort of oversee and make sure they're doing what they're supposed to be doing and, you know, aren't doing a bad job and then just charging you for it. So there probably is at least some benefit to trying most of the aspects of whatever business you find yourself in so that you can at least get an appreciation for what goes into it, even if you discover you're not that good at it. Does that sound about right? I think that most people, by the time you are in your 20s, most people know what they don't like. Um, I think the human psychology uh, is built, almost fully built, uh, by the time you are in your, uh, I said, 23, 24, 25. People change very little. In terms of uh, the structure of uh, their psychology, their taste, their ideology, uh, their uh, personality, um, you don't find a lot of changes. Huh? Uh, when people hate mathematics and they are, I don't know, uh, 12 years old, uh, you rarely see someone turning around and say, no, I'm going to love mathematics and, and be a mathematician for the rest of my life. It's very rare. By You can already see in teenagers uh, a clear inclination in some area. And... Uh, Okay, maybe it's good if you have time to go through different experiences, but uh, for most people, if you really know what you don't like and you know more or less what you like, uh, why should you try to force yourself uh, to go through the torture of uh, doing something you hate uh, for years? And uh, this is something that uh, is not self-evident because we tend to have a very uh, unrealistic uh, idea about markets if you are not in the market. When you're not really doing something every day and you don't know the, the different uh, uh, segments of the market, you don't know the prices, you don't know the, the speed of the transactions, you don't know the, the best uh, advertising channels, uh, we tend to have a very uh, unrealistic uh, picture. You have a very um, romantic, sometimes people have a very romantic idea of how business works. And when you actually get through the learning curve, uh, you realize that uh, many things you expected are wrong and that uh, many things you thought were super complicated and super easy 
uh, because someone has invented uh, has invented some software or some machine or some uh, uh, coding to solve the problem you thought it was impossible. So you have to go through a learning curve. But generally speaking, if you can really avoid uh, doing things you hate, um, uh, life is very short. I would not really spend uh, a lot of time doing that. Try to follow your your uh, inclinations. I always underline. Try to to go through the through the process of of developing a very strong uh, sense of direction. A sense of direction, I think, is the key. Um, not only to a to a good career, but uh, also to personal happiness. One other question: When considering doing the things that you're good at and that you like, and avoiding as much as you can uh, the ones that you don't, how much does finances play a part in that consideration? So, for example, if I'm just starting out um, my own business, should I maybe suck it up and take on certain tasks? on my own because it's going to be cheaper in the short term? Or should I be looking more long term and say, okay, let's take on some debt or, you know, do whatever I need to do to get some cash rolling in so that I can right out of the gate sub out some of these activities and really hit the ground running? Uh, this depends on the on the speed of the growth. Because if you say, okay, I can subcontract uh, 99% of the business and do only uh, marketing because I'm very good and I'm going to grow up uh, at I don't know, 30% per year, then you can subcontract uh, from day one because then if you see the, the grow in, uh, in revenue, uh, then you can afford a lot of mistakes, you can afford a lot of uh, uh, subcontracting. But this is not the case for most people. And why? This is because the, the learning curve. Uh, when you are getting into a new business or a new activity, uh, the level of ignorance is so so huge that uh, you don't even realize what is the best uh, uh, configuration of the task. Uh, you don't even know what you should subcontract or not because you don't know the whole process. And it's very difficult to conceptualize uh, uh, all the steps, uh, the different costs, uh, the the um, the connection between the different steps is very difficult to get it smoothly from the beginning if you don't have uh, really an insight in uh, this kind of stuff. The the cases where you, you are mentioned that uh, a, a person starts a business and then he decides, so I'm going to do marketing and everything else I'm going to subcontract. These are usually people who have uh, been in this kind of business for uh, 20 years. They know exactly how it works. They know all the process flow. They know all the steps. And they know how to set it up uh, perfectly from the beginning. They even know whom to hire and how much to pay. Uh, if you don't have this level of detailed knowledge, I think it's better to start slowly to keep your cash uh, to pay for mistakes you're going to make because you will make a lot of mistakes until you have uh, something that makes a profit, a small profit, and then you can scale it. But for most people, uh, to start from scratch and to get it uh, right at the very beginning and to grow at 30% uh, per year, uh, for most people and most businesses, this is not realistic. Uh, you should not take uh, a, a, an outlier from, the, from uh, history and say, okay, this guy did it, uh, because uh, you might not be able to replicate it. Uh, I think uh, you have to know what you know, what you don't know. And when you find a way to grow very fast, do it. But until you get to that level, it was like Rubens. I mean, Rubens, uh, until he uh, put together his machine, his marketing machine, I mean, it took him almost five years because he was struggling to get uh, things together. But eventually, when he uh, had the machinery of the business uh, functioning, 
he was growing extremely quickly. And then let's pivot a little bit over to the finance piece. Of course, we talked about that at the very beginning of personal finances. And like I said, I definitely second what you're saying. People need to dedicate at least some time in understanding investing and budgeting and what they're doing with their with their money. And I think a lot of the concepts that we're talking about probably directly apply to how people manage their money as far as learning as much as you can, picking up additional skills. In this case, I think you'd be talking about understanding different investments. What do you recommend for folks to start to build their knowledge in the world of personal finance? For instance, in, the, in the book, I, I, uh, I present in great detail the biography of uh, Bernard Baruch. He was a financier. He died in uh, 1965. Uh, he was a very famous investor in the 1950s, 1960s. He made a great fortune in the stock market. And uh, I think the first step uh, for people to realize uh, when you're talking about uh, personal finance is that uh, you are going to live uh, for easily 85, 90, 95 years today. So you have to realize that uh, unless you have a plan uh, to keep uh, your standard of living uh, at, a, at a good level and to have income uh, until your very last day is very risky uh, just to go uh, uh, about your business every day, your career, without thinking about uh, the long term. I mean, you don't have to think in terms of uh, hundred years or, uh, sorry, hundreds of years uh, or 200 years, but you do need to, to think in terms of 90 years because most people today, if they get old, they, they live to 90, 95. And you need to have a system to cover your expenditures at the time where you won't be able to work, or at least you won't be able to work uh, with a lot of physical energy. How do you do that? Uh, from history, we see different uh, strategies. Uh, I, I'm talking about people who are not uh, spending their whole life uh, uh, watching the stock market. I mean, I'm talking about people who, who have a career and want to keep uh, uh, their investments uh, separately. So I would say that uh, when you look at history, most people are either going to invest in houses uh, for rent, I mean, rental property, uh, which is uh, relatively um, uh, time intensive because you have to spend time finding the investments, uh, uh, furnishing, uh, renting. And to be clear, this is not feasible in some markets. Uh, if you are not living in an area where uh, renting is a good business, I don't know, if you're in the U.S., possibly you can do this in Texas or, I don't know, in Florida, but there are other areas where this is a terrible idea because uh, the market is very, very, I mean, I guess if you are living in uh, Baltimore, uh, you cannot make any money uh, renting houses. It's this horrible market. So this is one way. Uh, but uh, nowadays in the 21st century, I think for 99% of the people, uh, investing in the stock market is a better idea because it's easier. It is cheaper because the transaction costs are very, very low. The information uh, the cost of information is very, very low. and uh, You can spread uh, your investments in different countries, in different uh, industries, in different uh, uh, types of assets very easily. Uh, and it doesn't take a lot of time. If you, if you go through the learning curve and you read some books and you start uh, uh, investing every month, even if you do with a small amount, because I was talking to a friend the other day and she was uh, hesitating whether to invest in the stock market, and she was uh, afraid of losing her money. 
Uh, I found it very, very uh, strange because he just finished an MBA, uh, a master uh, administration degree. I said, how is it possible? I mean, you've done an MBA and you are not uh, confident enough to invest in the stock market, even a small amount. So eventually, I tried to convince her to open a, a brokerage account uh, to start reading the, the news every day about the stock market. I mean, even if it's only 10 minutes. And to invest uh, a small amount, invest $100. Uh, per month buy shares of, I don't know, some easy uh, company, I mean, I don't know, Citibank or Microsoft or whatever, buy shares and then uh, watch them and get some confidence until you can do uh, other things or so buy an ETF of uh, the, the, the index. Uh, but uh, you have to go through the learning curve and it's very easy to do, much easier, I think, than uh, buying houses. For most people, the idea of uh, buying a, a house and renting a house to fix it, uh, to find tenants, uh, to actually um, uh, keep an eye on the uh, repairs and this kind of stuff. For most people, it's not feasible uh, because you need a good market. Uh, you need to have some uh, um, uh, personal inclination to uh, to do this kind of stuff. It's a small. I mean, in the end, you're running a small business. I think for most people, I would say 90%, 95%, uh, the stock market is a better uh, approach when you're talking how to invest your money for your decades, because you are talking about uh, investing for the next decades until you are very old. It is easy. Uh, the con transaction costs are very low nowadays. I mean, come on, how much do you pay for a transaction with an internet broker? You're talking a small amount. I think uh, people are just uh, too afraid of uh, of history because they know that maybe their grandparents they lost money. Uh, in the 1920s, or maybe they went through the internet bubble, uh, I don't know, 20 years ago, and they still remember it. If you do it carefully and you go through learning curve and you don't go crazy and you learn little by little, I think it's a very good choice. It's something that uh, was not available in history uh, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. It was very expensive still to uh, to have a brokerage account. Today, uh, you can put uh, your whole portfolio. Uh, on Google Documents, on Google Spreadsheets, uh, it updates every 20 seconds and you don't have to pay anything. I mean, it's, it's astonishing. Uh, the level of access that uh, private investors uh, have today uh, has never happened in history, but for most people, uh, they have this uh, very um, romantic idea of the stock market. They have a very uh, unrealistic idea of risk and they have to go through the learning curve. Otherwise, uh, you will stay on the sides. And when you are 80 or 90, you will regret it uh, because you could have invested. You can uh, you could accumulate it uh, assets. And if you don't do anything, uh, nothing is going to happen. And a quick anecdote to the comparison with rental real estate compared to a stock portfolio. I know here in the US, there are a lot of services to take care of the things that you talked about that can be the headaches for rental property. Like, you know, you can pay a service to find you a tenant and be the maintenance guy if something goes wrong, um, collect the rent, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but of course, you're paying them. <laughs> so it goes back to the, the same concept that we were talking about before of considering what you are okay doing and what you're not okay doing. And I actually had the situation because uh, when we moved to where we live now, I was not able to sell my house. So I rented it for a while. And one thing that I would share with folks, if you do 
think you're going to do rentals and you're going to hire out a company to, um, again, find the tenant and do all that stuff. Well, they charge you for any like handyman fees or something like that. And the reason why that becomes a bit of an issue is it's almost like they are rewarded for finding things with your house that they say need to be updated or your rental property, which of course is costing you more money, more money in their pocket. And even with the stock market, if you're, let's say, using a broker, you know, you have a financial advisor, um, at least you're both on the same page about the incentive for if it increases, it's good for them and it's good for you. So you're sort of on the same page, whereas um, there is a little bit of a disincentive uh, if you do have a company to help you manage your rental properties. Um, now, otherwise, uh, if you are able to spend the time and it is something that you like to be able to do, it might be an option. But also to your point of the amount of uh, investments that are available in the stock market, I mean, heck, at this point, there are mutual funds, ETFs that are specific for real estate. So like you mentioned, if you find yourself in an area where um, real estate just is not really an option because it's not a heavily populated area or not a desirable area, whatever the case may be, um, there are investment options in the stock market that are based on real estate and I think even can be geographical based on the way that they're put together as well as the type. Like um, I know there are certainly like commercial real estate uh, investments that you can invest in. I assume there are probably residential ones as well, but I'd have to do some more research on that. And I think basically what we're saying here using that comparison is this is kind of the risk mitigation part uh, that you were talking about earlier as well, right? That, you know, you want to be diverse in the stock market. Again, it sounds like that has a pretty good correlation to career and career growth. Am I on the right track that that's a very specific thing you need to be looking for is spread out, in this case, your investments so that um, you're more protected from a particular industry or a particular type of investment going way up or way down. Yes, uh, what you want to have, um, in addition to the diversification, you want to have um, uh, a, a routine, something that uh, you can do every month. If you invest, uh, most people are going to invest uh, once a month. So I mean, you get your salary and you say, okay, I'm going to invest a few hundred uh, dollars. You develop a routine to get the money, to find uh, an investment, which might be very easy. I just mentioned you could be an ETF. Uh, I say ETF for, I don't know, some, some uh, REITs uh, for, for um, malls. So you can invest, uh, I don't know, in shipping or whatever you want. You put the money every month. You get develop the routine. It might take you an hour or a couple of hours per month. Uh, but then you just do it and then you just feel better and you develop this self-discipline, uh, which will help you in many areas. And in addition to that, I have to say that uh, one of the virtues of uh, investment, uh, international investment, when you invest in the, toys in the stock market, uh, you would put some money, say, in China, you put some money in, uh, in uh, India, you put some money in, uh, in Germany. Uh, it makes people very open to, um, to uh, other countries. Uh, one of the problems, I think, of the 21st century is that uh, uh, people are becoming very narrow-minded. They fear foreigners, uh, they fear uh, immigration, they fear uh, competition. Uh, it is uh, it is uh, very sad because um, uh, what creates innovation, what creates a, a very high standard of living that we enjoy in uh, in Europe, in the U.S., in uh, in other countries. Uh, is based on openness in competition, on freedom, on uh, innovation. And when you invest in the stock market, you have access to all this because you can invest in, in the best companies in China. You can invest in the best companies in Germany, in the best companies in France. 
and you have access to that and you you feel a part of a growing uh, world with innovation with uh, competition with freedom with productivity i think when people are fearful and they just close their eyes and they retreat in their uh, homes and they, they close the door and they don't want to hear anything about uh, um, uh, free trade or, or innovation or, or, uh, or competition or immigration. This is very bad. It's very bad for them. I think it's very unrealistic. You cannot really have a, 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 a you cannot really develop yourself as a person if you are driven by fear. And the best thing about investing is that uh, it's going to open your eyes to many opportunities, to many countries, to many uh, companies, and it's going to remove your fear. Because if you do it little by little, and you start uh, investing a, a few hundred dollars here, a few hundred dollars there, I mean, even if you just open a brokerage account and you put $50 and you buy an ETF, I tell you, after a few months, you will feel a new person because you will see, oh, I have uh, shares in China. I have uh, bought an ETF in Vietnam. I have invested in uh, BMW. I have invested in uh, whatever. I mean, you start to get a new a new understanding of what is going on in the world. You start to understand the news better. You start to be focused instead of uh, what most people do. It's just a very pessimistic uh, talk. You start to see the opportunities and you start to see the the um, the innovation. And I think investing not only will make you wealthier. I think it will make you a better person because you will be uh, more attuned uh, to international developments and you will be, I think, more peaceful because if everybody had uh, investments in different countries, I tell you, people will be much more peaceful and much more open to uh, to trade instead of trying to uh, constantly trying to be hostile uh, against other countries, which I think is a very bad thing uh, for the future. And uh, I recommend really everybody to start with international investment because you will become not only wealthier, but also, I think, uh, a more open-minded uh, person. A couple of points there to highlight that you're actually hitting some themes that we've discussed on prior episodes, actually in some travel episodes we've talked through. I referenced a book by Steven Pinker called Enlightenment Now, and I actually happened to read it right at the beginning of this year. So I'm sort of using it as my mantra for this year and beyond that. He points out through a whole lot of different statistics as far as, far as poverty rates and wars, things like that, that we're actually living in probably the best time in history Ever, It's just that with all the information that we have and everything being reported, it seems a whole lot worse. And so what to take from that, and I think like you're saying, even with the investing world, don't think that everything is so negative that you sort of curl, curl up in your shell and do nothing and, and think that everything is awful because that's only going to be bad for you. Because when in reality, like you said, there really is a lot of opportunity out there and we focused on it in our travel episodes. But yeah, it does make sense that you can also feel more connected in the investment world by expanding your knowledge and expanding what's going on. Um, and I think that is something that will absolutely help benefit expanding your world as a, as a person just in general. So I, I think that definitely makes sense and rings true with me. Also, if folks are new to the show and if we're talking about certain concepts that you're not that familiar with, if you go back to our episode four, we get into a lot of like retirement accounts. And then the last thing that strikes me in what you're talking about as far as having habits, um, we 
also talked about a book in previous episodes called The Behavioral Investor um, by Daniel Crosby. And there's a lot of those concepts of making sure that you can automate those behaviors. So if it's $100 a month, whatever budgeting wise you can do, make sure that you are automatically doing that. Lock it in, so to speak. Don't be so sort of scared by what could happen in the stock market and so on. Just make sure that you are being consistent and having consistent investment um, strategies. And history has shown that it will benefit you way more than completely staying out of the market and not having a plan for investing. Certainly. And um, one of the uh, stories I, I recount in the book, just to give you an idea of this, uh, this habit uh, aspect, um, I spend a, a chapter on the um, uh, cathedrals, uh, cathedrals builders in the, in the Middle Ages, how people actually build cathedrals. I'm talking about uh, cathedrals in Europe, these Gothic uh, cathedrals you see in France, in Germany, how they build them uh, with very few resources. Uh, with extreme uh, uh, um, uh, constraints because it was very cold. Uh, people could not speak the same language. Uh, technology was very low. I mean, there were a lot of uh, constraints, a lot of problems. But uh, the way they build them, uh, I mean, just I'm just summarizing the, the book uh, in this area. The way they managed to do these amazing things is like building uh, assets. I mean, you say, after 20 years, I built uh, a fortune. I built a cathedral. How did they do it? Well, one of the main principles is that uh, they build systems. They build uh, habits that uh, could sustain uh, any kind of disruptions. Uh, when it was uh, very cold outside and people could not work, uh, they develop uh, um, habits to be able to work inside, to work indoors. They built uh, houses for the uh, masons and they could continue to work in the winter uh, when the temperature was very low. They developed uh, a standardization and they standardized the, the size of the stones uh, to be able to work faster. They uh, developed uh, communication systems to be able to communicate uh, to the workers what they have to do because they spoke uh, 20 different languages. I mean, they developed these habits uh, that allow them to, uh, to build cathedrals. And if you're going to invest or you're going to do anything, if you're going to learn uh, Spanish, or you are going to develop uh, some skills in some area, uh, you have to develop these habits of uh, productivity, of, uh, of self-discipline, because then it is this what gets in them. It is not magical uh, knowledge that is going to tell you uh, in which company to invest or which uh, ETF to buy. I mean, when you're starting out, nobody knows the answer. I mean, you have to learn it. But if you spend every week a couple of hours, uh, you will learn uh, relatively quickly. Um, I always uh, compare uh, investing uh, personal finance with uh, learning a language uh, because it, uh, it's exactly the same. I mean, if you see people speaking several languages, uh, it seems like magic. I say, how could you learn uh, Spanish or German or French if you live in, uh, in New York? Well, the answer is always the same, little by little. I mean, you spend every day 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Uh, you practice a little bit, you learn some words, then you forget them, then you learn them again, then you make mistakes, then you correct. And eventually, uh, there is a point where you can speak the language. And it seems like magic, but investment is exactly the same. Uh, you learn a little by little, you invest $50, you invest $100, you use ETFs, you use brokers, you make mistakes. Sometimes you lose uh, what you invested because you make a stupid decision, but you will not lose too much if you diversify. And after a few years, you are amazingly good 
because you just learned the basics, you went through the learning curve, and then you are confident enough to say, uh, this is a good investment, this is not good, and then you just uh, grow and grow and grow. And by the time you are 60 or 70 or 80, uh, you have uh, substantial assets. So I just want to give the message that uh, uh, developing the right habits is the key uh, to investing successfully. It's more important uh, doing that uh, than actually having someone tell you to buy shares of, uh, of uh, I don't know, Apple or, or Amazon. Uh, try to develop your skills, to develop your habits, because those will make you successful in any circumstances. Do you have any particular books or resources that you would point folks to um, that are brand new? They're either ones that you've come across that you've read personally that, that have helped or um, any other resources? Yeah. Uh, well, okay. First, I recommend my books. Uh, <laughs> sure. Many of them uh, deal with aspects of uh, personal finance, but uh, I would I would certainly recommend people to, um, I assume that most people are going to have a mobile phone, a, uh, a smartphone, uh, to use a kind of RSS of the uh, newsreader uh, to read financial blogs or to read news. Um, because it takes you every day, I don't to take you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes to go through the headlines. And if you just subscribe to, uh, I mean, they are free, huh? and you just subscribe to different uh, financial publications um, in your RSS uh, reader on the phone, uh, you can get more information in 10 minutes that you will get uh, in, uh, I don't know, uh, one year of watching TV because you can compare different headlines, you can see different uh, uh, approaches, different uh, interpretations of different news. Uh, this is for free. I mean, you can do it for free on your smartphone. It's a very, very useful uh, way to learn. And you have to try different uh, websites to see what you do. I mean, most of the financial publications or the newspapers, they have uh, free access to their blog. Uh, and you can get it on your smartphone, on your tablet. This is a very good thing to do. I do it myself already for years. Uh, you can spend 10 minutes a day, but uh, you will become much wiser because you will have access uh, to different sources of information. Very, very easy. Uh, very, very well written, most of them. And uh, this is one of the great uh, advantages of living in the 21st century. So use it because uh, it's free and uh, you will learn so much in uh, after you do this for a few weeks you will become i think um, uh, much much wiser and your views of the world will become much more balanced well and as you mentioned yes i should have said goes without saying check out your books <laughs> for sure as well as some of the other resources that you were talking about and uh of course the most recent one undisrupted how highly effective people deal with disruptions. And John, I really appreciate you being on the show today. Do you want to go ahead and give folks your contact information, social media, and also, of course, all the places that they can find your books? Yeah, I'm very, very easy uh, to find. Uh, if you just uh, type my name on Google or any search engine, uh, John Vespasian, uh, John Vespasian, uh, you will find in one second my books, my blog, there are hundreds of uh, free articles. There is a free newsletter. Uh, just type uh, John Vespasian on Google. Uh, you will find everything in one second. It's very, very easy to find. Great. Well, before I let you go, is there anything that we missed that we should go over today? Yes, I just like uh, to close just with one uh, piece of advice um, uh, for people to be a bit patient because um, uh, today in the 21st century, you find uh, very few people who read books, maybe uh, 3% of the population. 
because everybody wants to learn uh, the secrets of life by reading some uh, blog post of uh, 200 words or by uh, listening to a podcast or by watching TV, which is fine. But you have to read. You have to read uh, books. You have to read uh, uh, biographies. You have to read history uh, because the wisdom you can gain uh, from other people uh, is the cheapest way of education. I mean, you can watch TV for uh, uh, 10 years, but if you read uh, a few books per year, uh, your level of knowledge will increase. You will become more thoughtful. Uh, you will have uh, better language skills, and this cannot be replaced. I find it very um, uh, dangerous when children nowadays they are they are uh, educated on the basic of uh, on the basis of uh, PowerPoint presentations, uh, Wikipedia, uh, copy paste. This is very dangerous. You want to have a perspective. Uh, you want to go through the learning curve. Uh, you want to have real knowledge. You have to read, and you have to read books. Uh, take your time. Uh, buy pocket books, buy cheap books, buy secondhand books, buy read books. If you don't read books, it's very difficult uh, to move forward. I think that is great advice and um, certainly a, a good place for us to just conclude today. Well, I really appreciate you being on the show. I had a lot of fun um, going through your book and some of the examples and I could talk about finances and all this kind of stuff all day, but we'll leave it at that for now. And if you'd like to come back on at a later time, you have an open invite. Many thanks, uh, Greg. Uh, thanks for having me and I uh, wish you a great weekend. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple, Spotify, Google play, or wherever you get podcasts. If you'd like to be notified of future weekly episodes, please hit the subscribe button. If you'd like to help us even further, visit suburbanfolk.com and you'll find a donate button where all the money goes back into the show for you. Thanks for listening. The following is a message from Tatnus Co. All right, tatnusco.com is just about ready to launch. Hey, what if we added a blog section so fans get to know more about who Tatnus is? You know, that's actually not really a bad idea. Alright, that should do it. Um, this link is not working. Are you kidding me? We gotta get this done. Alright, cool. There, we fixed it. Now we can launch this thing, right? Hey, did, did you remember to add the privacy policy? Mother It may have taken a while, but tatnusco.com is finally up and live and open for business. And yes, we remember the privacy policy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been emotional.